Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2 this morning. 1 John 2, we are in a new teaching series we launched just a couple of weeks ago entitled Prove It, allowing John to write this letter to the churches scattered all throughout Asia Minor, and he's writing to the Christians there, warning them in the last part of the first century of the danger of Gnosticism. This new teaching was trying to tell them that Jesus was not God incarnate, so this was not God in man form. They were trying to disprove the deity of Jesus Christ. And so what the Gnosticism false teachers were trying to tell the church and the early Christians here was uh, that you could only have a clear understanding, a divine knowledge of God to the elitist, the elite Christians. And so John is going to really, in a very tender, passionate way, he's going to write this letter that we're studying together called 1 John. And as we read this, we hear his words, we understand his words, and the importance that he puts behind them of not only passionately telling them the truth, but with equal passion telling them to avoid the false teachers. And so when we pick up here in our text in just a few moments, we're going to come to chapter number two. And what I love about this new section of the letter is that it comes in a time now where he's going to help us to look at conquering our sin and really seeing victory over that sin that seems to so easily consume us. Now, unfortunately, this is not a final victory that we can have over sin. That time is coming where the presence of God, will, or excuse me, the presence of sin will be no more and we'll be ushered into the presence of God. I'm looking forward to that day. I am done battling with the sin nature, and, uh, but we continue to press forward, trying to be, doing our best to be more like Jesus Christ. That's called sanctification. It's being set apart from the world, not being conformed to the world or being like the world, but it's being more and more like Jesus Christ. So this passage helps us to see a little bit about that today. We're going to see right in the beginning of chapter number two, he addresses the reader as my little children. Now, this phrase is going to help us to understand a really good indication the state of where John is at this point. He's an elder man who is writing to some new Christians who need to hear this truth. This is the first out of seven times that John is going to use that phrase, my little children. And so the, uh, this is going to help us when we understand reading in verse number one. Why don't we dig in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to read the first six verses of this chapter. My little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not... And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation or the, the substitute of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. If he that saith, I know him, and he keepeth not his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected or matured, it, it grows. Hereby know we that we are in him. Verse 6, he that saith he abides in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he, Jesus, walked. This morning we're going to dig into these first six verses, and we're going to look at the divine defense I'm thankful for the divine defense that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we calm our spirits at this moment in order to hear from you. I know that the tendency is for our minds to begin to wander. There's a lot of things that happen in our life, 
even after this time expires today where we go into our afternoon and evening, we have plans, we have meals, we have conversations, and we have to-do lists. But Lord, I'm going to ask very specifically that you would just help us to remain focused here for the next 25, 30 minutes and that we would hear from you today. I thank you for how you've used the music to prepare our hearts and to direct our attention to the gospel, to your son Jesus Christ dying to be buried, but then to come back to life victorious because of your miraculous work. So God, would you help us today to understand your message and that, Lord, it would be life-changing in Jesus' name. Amen. So here he gives us a very clear message right at the onset of verse number one because he's going to say, these things I write unto you that you sin not. Now the New Testament is clear that Christians are going to struggle with this battle all throughout our spiritual journey. That's why we keep refreshing our mind on the reality that spiritual decline will happen if we're not intentional about spiritual renewal. Because when we're not doing anything to be renewed in the spirit of our mind to be more like Jesus Christ, that decline just naturally happens and it can happen at a pretty drastic rate. So he's saying here that he wants us to see the, the privilege we have to encounter victory over sin. Remember what Romans chapter 6, how Paul wrote it to the Romans. He said, let not sin therefore reign, rule, or have ownership in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust or the desires and the pulls thereof. Verse 13, he said, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So sin doesn't have to rule and reign. Our, our lust or our desires don't have to have ownership over us. We have been given the victory that overcomes our sin. And that is grace, which is so much greater than our sin. First Peter Peter wrote this in his letter in chapter 2, verse 24. He said, who his own self bear our sins in his body. That's Jesus. We sang about it. You have heard it over and over and over again this morning. Your mind and heart have been reminded of that. It was Jesus who himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross, the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. So he writes, now John is writing this to the reader in verse 1 as an encouragement that reiterates the fact that we don't have to live defeated and conquered lives. I think one of the most sad realities in a lot of Christians' lives is that we allow guilt to really overwhelm us. And so we have guilt from our, our past, our history, our story, and we want to let that just kind of tag along all through life. And as a Christian, we were reminded last week in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And see, if he's willing and wanting and capable of forgiving, we need to find ourselves willing, wanting, and capable to forgive ourselves. We need to free ourselves of the backpack of guilt and leave it at the cross and say, God, your son Jesus has given me the avenue and the way of escape from this guilt. And now you have that liberty because what ends up happening is the, the heavier the backpack of guilt gets, you're just like, well, what does it matter now? I mean, I'm already struggling with bitterness and anger in my heart. What's another reason 
why I shouldn't just spout off with these things that are negative and hurtful. Why shouldn't I just slander? Why shouldn't I just gossip? Why shouldn't I backbite? Or if we wander down the pathway of sexual immorality and we're hearing that backpack of guilt that we don't know what to do with and we're like, what's yet another, what's another act? What's another week? What's another weekend of it? And instead of being freed from that, we feel like we have to carry it as if we deserve that or as if I should just keep going through it. There's no way to overcome it, so I'm just going to keep doing it. Well, John is giving us the answer to that. And he's going to write this in reminding us of the Holy Spirit who lives within every Christian who has given us the regenerated power and that regenerated heart that has been delivered from our habitual sins. In verse number one and two, we see the role of Jesus Christ. And he says, and says, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What I love about this thought is, he says in verse number one, if, if any man will sin. Well, I circled that word if because I had to study that out. If we use the word if, it's like, girls, if you get your homework done, we'll go to frozen yogurt and we'll get some, some uh, treats. Like you can call it ice cream. It's frozen yogurt, right? So I say, okay, if I do this, then I get that. And there's a very intentional, purposeful act there. So when he's saying here is not that there may, because the girls may decide, ah, yeah, frozen yogurt's not that good, so we're not going to really do our homework, and, um, and so we're going to do something else. Well, the word if here is not that maybe we'll sin and maybe we won't. The word here is that though you sin or whoever is sinning, so we know that that if word, though there are times of great victory where we walk away from temptation and we say, no, I'm going to show my love and loyalty to Christ instead of love and loyalty to my flesh. Though there are great victories to be had, we know that that sin nature still can seem to be overwhelming. And he says, when that happens, we have an advocate and that advocate is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the advocate for the saint now, sin here in this verse is, is, is used all throughout the New Testament. It's the most common Greek term for sin, and it means to, to miss the mark. It's what we would know well when we talk about falling short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen or come short of the glory of God. There is something there that has caused us to always miss the mark. Some of you are good shooters in here, whether it's a Glock, 9mm, or a maybe a bow and arrow or something that you tend to really enjoy. And when you're setting yourself to hit the mark, the target, you work really hard in yourself to, to make that work. And I remember as a child sometimes trying that out with a bow and arrow until either my dad or an older brother would kind of come along and, and really then help me to learn how to better aim. So Jesus Christ comes along as our advocate to those who constantly miss the mark and he says, I'm going to come shoulder to shoulder beside you, and I'm going to represent you. I'm going to help you with the Father. I'm going to help you to make your mark. And so Christ represents us in heaven before God the Father. He says that this Jesus Christ is the righteous one. That's why we often will remind ourselves of, of how it's Jesus, how God sees us through the righteousness of Christ. Because as he advocates on our part as a representative for us, God can now see us in that way. I love Jesus, this picture here of our defender who comes to the aid of his client. 
And it's really, I heard from um, our, Bob and Sue Etner, are you in here today? Okay, Bob and Sue sitting in the middle. Had a conversation. We, several of us went over yesterday, last night, to Sandland. How many residents from Sandland do we have typically on a given Sunday? Maybe about uh, 10 or so. So we went over last night for their movie night, and we served Coke floats and ice cream sundaes and got to meet several people and uh, just had the opportunity to interact with them. Now, Bob and Sue, Bob is kind of like the camp pastor. He, he's the one that does chapel there at 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings. If you would mark it down and you think about it on Sunday mornings in your prayer time and quiet time, would you pray for Bob Etner and the time that they have during the months here in Sandland with the 8 o'clock chapel? People from all over the place are coming to Sandland to hear Bob Etner. <laughs> no, no, no. They're coming all over the place to be at, at Sandland for the winter and then they offer this chapel service. Well, Sue and I were talking last night, and she was just sharing with me. I think it was a wife-proud moment. She was just like, Bob has the opportunity every Sunday to preach the gospel. And now these are people who are coming from a lot of different backgrounds, and Bob is able to just preach the truth of the gospel. And the illustration she gave last night was what he did, I believe, last Sunday, and talking about writing sins on a sticky note and putting them all over. Like, this is the sticky note that labels me. So picture in your mind, what labels you? What's on your sticky note? Some of you, you've got about 20 sticky notes, all right? So stick them all over. Some of you, maybe five or six. Some of you, one. Okay, well, then put another one for lying because you've got a lot more <laughs> sticky notes, all right? So let's think about it. What's the sticky note? And we're putting it all over us. And then the illustration was the fact that we come with a ton of sticky notes because we are always falling short and missing the mark until it's that Jesus Christ partners with us and says, give me that sticky note. Give me that sticky note. Hey, would you let me have that sticky note? And Jesus, as our advocate, takes that for us. What an incredible picture. Thank you, Bob, and thank you, Sue, for sharing it to me. And so here with Jesus as that partner. And then in verse number two, here's something that we've if you are that one who's receiving Jesus as your advocate, you've already experienced verse number two. But there may be somebody here today that you've never experienced verse number two before. And he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. Now, remember, he's writing to Christians, so he's reminding them, hey, Christian, don't forget, he's not just the substitute for, for our sins. It's not us for and no more. He says, but also for the sins of the whole world. So before he was ever our advocate, he was turning God's wrath completely away from the sinners and putting it on himself. See, Jesus took on the wrath of God at that cruel, rugged cross. And as he stretched out his arms and took the punishment and pain, he took on the sins of all the world, past, present, and future. And the shedding of blood of Jesus Christ is what gives us the, the, res, the, 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 the redemption of our sins. It is what washes away and gives us that forgiveness of sin. I'm, I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. But here with the propitiation, it means the, the satisfaction or the appeasement. His sacrificial death satisfied the demands for God's justice. And some people would say, well, you're... You would just say that your God is love. Yeah, God is love. We say, well, you just talk about God is, is grace. He's just gracious. Yeah. And you would say, well, there's no way that God would ever punish or that God would never send people to hell. And the truth is, is that God doesn't send people to hell. 
It's the rejection of man that says, I don't want what God has to offer through his son. I'll just go to the courtroom on my own behalf. So there are a lot of people who have lived this life here on this very fragile earth, and they've lived there 40, 50, 60, 80, 120 years until they get to the other side of eternity and realize that they never called on a satisfaction or an appeasement for their sin because they thought they could carry their own sticky notes and just carry around their little white pen and just try to scratch them off with whiteout. Well, you don't see my sin if I just white it out. No, the reality is it's still there pretty blaring, and its reality is you cannot remove it. So let's quit trying to remove sin on our own. Let's quit trying to boast about how moral of a people we really think we are, and let's submit ourselves to a greater being who is the creator of all the world, who is going to bring justice and judgment, but that's where his son Jesus stepped in and said, God... On behalf of those sinners, I want to be the appeasement and satisfaction of your wrath. And God says, well, are they willing to accept it? And there are millions and many who have, yet the broader the road is to the people who have said, nah, I've got this on my own. Until they realize on the other side of eternity, they needed that appeasement, that satisfaction. They realized that they needed that person to substitute for him. You know, I think about this illustration, and I met uh, Bill Bowes right before the service. It's Pat Sanford's nephew. He is a fire chief in one of the suburbs of Omaha, Nebraska. Whenever I meet a fireman, I always, initially, when I'm thinking gospel, I think of this illustration right away. The truth is, is that there at their fire station, there probably are many calls that come in for help needed. And if those firemen respond with an answer that says, hey, what's going on? What's the 911 call? And the dispatcher is saying, hey, we need you to get to 213 Bobby Courts, and this is what's going on. We need you to get there. And they're like, whoa, what's going on? Oh, you know what? Yeah, actually, you know what? I think they're just going to have to figure this out on their own. If the firemen responded by saying they need to figure it out on their own, they could even walk outside the fire station and see the smoke and the flames going. They're like, you know what? Somebody else will take care of that. Somebody else's, that's somebody else's problem. Let's get back to our card game. Let's get back to our TV show. Or let's get back to lifting weights. Or they're always washing trucks, aren't they? They always wash trucks, all right? Let's get back to washing trucks. Now, that's absurd to think that the firemen who are there ready and eager to help, that they're not going to answer the call. In some same way, so often, many of us sit under someone who so passionately with love and direction, want to give you truth. They want to offer that to you, and you're just looking and saying, that's for somebody else. That's somebody else's problem. If somebody else needs help or a crutch, they can go after that. I've got this fine. If they only knew my grandpa, my grandpa was a deacon at that small church in the mountains. If they only knew him, they'd know I'm fine. My mom was a Sunday school teacher for so many years. I, I grew up in church. I mean, I was there. I remember the hymns. I remember the songs. I even memorized the third verse of every hymn. I am a Holy Joe super saint. Yeah, if you did that, there is a crown for you somewhere. But the truth is, is none of that experience is going to save you for eternity. The Bible reminds us, for by grace, that's from God, are you saved through faith. That is something within you that says, God, I believe in you. I don't just believe you as being some being, but I, I believe that you sent your son Jesus 
to this earth to live a sinless life so that he would be the sacrifice for me. And I take ownership of my sin that I have totally missed the mark. And it's not my dad's fault. It's not my grandmother's fault. It's not my neighbor's fault. It's not my church family's fault. It's nobody's fault but mine. I have missed the mark. And so I put my faith and trust in you to forgive me of my sins. And I claim you as my savior. And I want to follow you as my Lord. That's experiencing Jesus as your propitiation, your satisfaction to the wrath of God. But now he continues in this letter. And remember, he's writing to Christians. So these are followers of Jesus Christ. These are people who know the gospel because they've experienced the truth of the gospel. And now he comes to verse number three and he's talking about the responsibility of the Christian, the the responsibility of the follower of Jesus Christ. And as we look at these, John says, we do know that we know him if we keep the commandments of God, verse number three. Now, this word keep gives us the idea to attend to carefully. It's the idea of to take care of or to guard or to observe. Moms in here, you went to the nursery today and you dropped off your child for them to keep your child during the service. And your expectation of our nursery and our children's ministry is for them to attend to carefully, to take care of, to guard, and to observe. Now, some of you, your babies in your life are on four legs with a bunch of fur. How many of you have a baby that barks, all right? That's your baby, okay? Not, not your husband, okay? I'm talking about the, the puppy dog. You didn't follow the description. Four legs, all right? I know he's furry, and I know he barks, but I'm talking about the dog, okay? So how many of you would say that there's been times where you've entrusted somebody to keep your dog? Maybe it was a family friend. Maybe it was a family member. Only one time, and you realize they're terrible, so we got to do something else, and then maybe it's a, it's a shelter or whatever they call those places where you drop off your dog. And, and what do they do? Some of those places are fancy. They have a camera, so you can even pull it up three days later. You pull it up, and there's your dog, you know, and you're doing all these cute things. And what are you doing? You're entrusting them. If you saw them come in and yell at your dog and kick it, oh, they're not keeping it. So here, that word keep, wrap your mind around that. It's an entrusting of his commandments. It's, a, it's attending to them carefully. That means with great intent. And then this word commandments here in the original language, it's, it's the word that is, is a little different from the Mosaic law. And this means God's biblical precepts. It's going to be the directives of Christ. You remember what Jesus told the lawyer who was trying to back him into a corner and trick him and said, what's the greatest commandment? And without missing a beat, Jesus responded and said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And then he says, the second greatest commandment is like unto this, love thy neighbor, love people as thyself. Then he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That would have been the, the Bible that they would have held in their hands at the time, all scripture. He said, loving God and loving people, all the, all the Bible, all the scripture that you know and hold, it all hinges on us obeying the very fact to love God with every part of who we are and to love people like we love ourselves. So when he says for us to keep the commandments, this is a true responsibility. It means to carefully attend to, to take care of, to guard and to observe his precepts, his commandments. John 14, 15 The author of this letter wrote a gospel and he said, if you love me, Jesus said these words, John penned the words, if you love me, 
keep my commandments. And so Christian, if we truly love him, if we say that we know him, as verse 3 says, then we're going to keep his commandments. Verse number 4, he says, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And so there is no fellowship or partnership. So a responsibility to the Christian is to enjoy a close fellowship with God. Let's quit just saying with our mouth that we love him or we know him, and let's exhibit that. Hey, Valentine's Day is this week, so just some information for some of you out there. Don't forget, it's Friday. And, um, and so this is a moment where it's not just saying something, it is putting actions behind it. In the morning session with Brother Merrill, we were valuing our vows, our marriage vows, And what great reminders all throughout that session on the commitment that we have made to someone. And to that someone, it is not just words, but now it's going to be where rubber meets the road and it's actions. It's where I have to exhibit that. It's where I put it into practice. So we can sing the song, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Amen. Everybody's so excited to sing along. But what does your life represent throughout the week? Is it a life that truly enjoys a fellowship, partnership, and connection with Jesus? You say, what does that even look like? How do, I, how do I enjoy fellowship with him? It means when you encounter a really bad day at work, you're not going to be the one that is the highlight or the headline in the office uh, gossip chain. They're actually going to see you be able to compose yourself in such a way that they say, I don't know how they let the boss rip into them and they didn't even say anything in return. Or why aren't they in the break room gossiping about the boss, how awful they are, how bad of a leader they are? It's going to be your neighbors seeing you as husband and wife that are just joined in hand in hand and unity and unison together, trying to do your very best to live a life that is joyful and honoring to the Lord. It means that in our daily lives, when temptation comes, we don't throw our hands up in the air and says, nobody understands. We're going to be reminded about the truth that there is no temptation given unto men whereby Jesus Christ doesn't come in and already give us a way to escape. He has given us the avenue for us to have victory. So living in this this enjoyment of a close fellowship or connection with God is so important. In verse 6, he's going to say, if we say that we have fellowship with him or that connection and we walk in darkness, well, then we lie and we do not know the truth. So you cannot fake a close relationship. It's either there or it's not there. Many parts of our lives are affected based on our connection with God. If you're constantly in conflict, that's because you're not in close fellowship with God. If you're constantly negative, that's because you're not in close connection with God. If you're constantly giving in to habitual sins in your life, it's because you're neglecting being in a partnership, a close partnership with God. We talk about Galatians chapter 5, walking in the Spirit. And what ends up happening then is we are empowered by the Spirit to be able to say yes to things that are good and no to the things that are bad. That's this connection. Then verse number five, he says, but whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Well, that word perfected is a a growth term. It's a maturing term. It's a cultivating term. So it's to cultivate the love of God in your life. When he says keeps his word, that is obedient to God's word, and it becomes evidence of our love for him. James chapter 1, James put it this way, be doers 
of the word and not hearers only. Because the warning was is that if you're not becoming a doer and putting into action and just a hearer, well, then you're deceiving your own selves. Now, every Sunday, we all gather and we're all participants in hearing God's word. What is said from the pulpit is really bathed in prayer before I ever walk in here that, God, we need to hear your message from you. Because man can easily hijack it. I could easily hijack any message, take it the direction I want, and try to push down your throat my soapboxes that I want to build so that you'll hear my voice. That's just not how we do it. We want to be servants of God that hear his message. And so as hearers of his message, now it becomes our responsibility Understand when I'm preaching, I visualize myself sitting right here in front of Renee the whole time. And sometimes I have to shout, amen, that's good, preacher. That was a good point right there, okay? But the truth is, is that I'm with you throughout these messages. When I look at my own life and I say, do I cultivate the love of God in my life? Well, I'm a pastor. I I should. And everybody in here is going to see my outward actions as a man who cultivates the love of God in his life. But you don't know this deceptive heart. The Bible tells me I don't even know my own deceptive heart, but I do know that I partner with you to submit myself to the desire that God would grow something in me, that he would grow it in you, that we would have a stronger connection to God, because what that does is keeps us unified as his church, centered around the mission of the gospel moving forward to greater things, and little things get left behind because they're just distractions by the enemy. And this voice will say this, and this voice will say this, and we'll try to do all these different things and make them important issues until we're led by God that says, we got a greater mission, and it's about the gospel being given to a a world that is lost and dying without Jesus. And so we all partner in this cultivating process, asking for the love of God to be in our life. Here's the danger. The danger is we are so deceptive by nature. But do you know the people who are closest to you, we just can't really deceive them, can we? I walk hand in hand through the aisles with Natalie. She's not here this morning. She's at home with Bailey. But we'll walk through the aisles and, hey, honey, let's go talk to this visitor. And so we'll go over to a new guest. Hi, I'm Peter. I'm the pastor. This is my wife, Natalie. Arm around her. And everybody just thinks we're the greatest couple. And we walk around, this is Natalie, I'm Peter. We've been happily married for 18 years, and this is just a wonderful life. And then we get out in the parking lot after all of you have already left. She gets in her car, I get in my car. I have to call her with the phone, hey, what are we eating for lunch? I don't know, what do you want to eat? I don't know, just pick something, all right? So, whoa, why are you so riled up? I don't know, it's been a long day. What do you want to eat? Well, let's go here. No, I don't really like that, all right? You know how it goes. The worst part is some of you get in a car together, and it's like World War III, all right? Now, look, instead of fighting with each other about one another, remember, you're not each other's enemy. Brother Randy reminded that in our session this morning. If you need to let off some some anger and some fit, bring me up. Talk bad about me. Do whatever you have to. Don't attack each other. Attack me or something else. You know, there's a greater enemy. I'm not your enemy. It's, it's the devil. So bring him up next time, all right? And try to find a common bond. But here, we, do, we like to deceive others. And we sit close together in church, and we hold hands together out in public, and we want to put on this facade. We want people to think we're the best. 
until we get behind closed doors and the truth comes out. You know, Christians, we have a tendency to do that too, don't we? We go up to people and we're like, hi, I'm Peter and this is, this is my Jesus. <laughs> I love Jesus. He saved me and he can save you. And then when you all leave and go your separate ways, I get in my car and I'm just like, man, is this Jesus thing really worth it? And then I get through my week and temptation comes and I'm like, Jesus is the furthest thing from my mind. And you live there, I live there. We try to deceive others, but God, we cannot deceive. So the cultivation of the love of God will happen when we submit ourselves to that moment where we say, God, allow your son to take over me. Now, John Stott, I I always pass up his quotes every week. I put them on the screen and then I forget. So let's uh, do this one. He said, being a Christian consists in essence of a personal relationship to God in Christ, knowing him, loving him, and abiding in him as the branch abides in the vine. This is the meaning of eternal life. If you're here today and you're not experiencing that, would you be honest with yourself? Would you come to grips with the fact that life is like a vapor? Here for a moment, gone. Kobe Bryant, 41 years old. Sure, some people make it to 80, 90. What was it? Douglas, Kirk Douglas, 103. Uh, sure, it's, it's a broad range. But we're not promised tomorrow. So where are you going when you take your final breath? You can't get on the other side of this life and and get to eternity and be like, you know what, God? Hey, I remember every detail and every thought about that message on that Sunday morning in February 2020. I'll take that now. There's no summer school. There's no redo in eternity. Today is that opportunity for you to, to humble yourself and experience God's grace. The last thing is in verse number six, this responsibility of being a follower of Jesus Christ is to walk as he walked. He that saith he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as Jesus walked. So a life that is authentically abiding in Christ is going to be one that that is clearly showing in the way that we walk. Not just what we say, but in how we act. How How did he walk? Well, we won't take time to look at all of this, but let's just think of some of the headlines. He submitted to his father's will. He also would look to serve other people. Remember, it was Jesus who washed the dirty, grubby feet of the disciples in the upper room. He always was looking to interact with messy lives, and he served others. How else did Jesus exemplify this? Well, he loved the unlovable. He would spend time with those who rejected him, denied him, and ultimately would betray him, yet he would spend days and hours, weeks and months with them. He would strive for holiness. Remember what Peter wrote, but as he which hath called you is holy, be holy in all manner of conversation, in every part of your lifestyle, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And so this is not some, some huge target that says it's not even worth trying. It's a step-by-step-by-step process that sees growth each and every time. And then we would see that Jesus walked this way by resting and being renewed. Some of you are so strung out that you don't have time to be spiritually renewed. 
Some of you are trying to do so much in life and it gives you a sense of accomplishment and a sense of success until one day you wake up and realize that it was all in vain because nothing was an investment in heaven for eternity. So it's okay to, to be doing stuff, but don't define your life by the long list of accomplishments and things that you have to do. Sometimes God puts us on our backs and says, be still for a moment. Sit here, meditate on my word, and let's fellowship together. So what did Jesus do in the busyness of his ministry? Jesus would get away from the crowd. He'd get on a mountainside. He would pray, and he would talk to his father. He would rest. He would find moments of renewal. And we too, as we walk as Jesus walks, needs to rest and be renewed. And then Jesus overcame the enemy Satan tempted him three times in the, in the wilderness, and he overcame every temptation. In all points, he was tempted like we are, yet without sin. And Jesus would tell the disciples that there's a thief that comes not for, but to steal, to kill, and destroy. And that enemy is very real in our life, trying to kill, steal, and destroy. But then Jesus says, but I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And so that life is that we would live it to the fullest, that that life would be lived overcoming the enemy and lived for him. It is said that um, one of the distinguishing marks of Caesar as a soldier was that he never said to his followers, go. He would always say, come. And then Alexander the Great also, it was noted that in weary marches, he was sure to be on foot with his warriors every step of the way. In the fierce attacks, he was always on the front line. The most persuasive sermon is the example that leads the way. And you think about that with this character trait of Jesus Christ, the divine defense. Spurgeon noted it this way. He said, whenever he sends out all his own, he goes before them. You see, that's the Jesus we serve. He was a satisfaction for the sinner of the wrath of God. And now he stands shoulder to shoulder as an advocate for the saint. That's an incredible divine defense that for me, I'm thankful for today. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, we find great hope and assurance in that. But if you're here today and you've never experienced that, well, our invitation to you today is that you take the truth of God's word and become different. Not a fanatic, but somebody who becomes a follower of Jesus Christ with a personal relationship in him.